Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Well, I want to uh, welcome everyone uh, listening to us on the internet. The title of my message this morning is Damaged Goods. And we are back in Luke chapter 4. The story of Jesus reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And this is something that we touched on a few weeks ago in a previous uh, message. It says in verse 16 of Luke 4, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day... He went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and there he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. And now go back to Isaiah 61, if you will, please. The original uh, uh, Hebrew, if you like, of this portion that Jesus reads. And there's a little more here than Luke has recorded for us. So Isaiah 61 is, uh, if you like, the, the fuller version of this. Where the Lord uh, reads this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And this thing about the oppressed and recovery is explained in what can only be described as emotional healing concepts. These things are to do with physical healing, but they're also to do with character change, emotional restoration. He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. We noted a number of weeks ago now that this passage, Isaiah 61, was very important to the ministry of Jesus. He quotes it, he enacts it, and so much of it, and I, I'm just going to say this very quickly because we spent an hour or so covering this a few weeks ago, so much of it is really to do with the emotions. Okay, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, absolutely. But so much more is involved in the ministry of Jesus to us. Things like the, uh, the healing of the brokenhearted, uh, bringing freedom to those in the darkness. 
uh, mourners, those who are grieving, those who have despair, shame and disgrace. It's amazing that so much of that passage, a favorite of Jesus is, if you like, underlined in his Bible about his ministry, is to do with touching people in the area of their emotion, in the area of their character, fixing things that are wrong, but not things that a doctor could fix. Uh, uh, Fixing things that are wrong in people's hearts, in people's minds, even in people's personalities. And I want to take a few minutes this morning just to continue this thought and maybe help you to understand some of the ways that God works in this, in this uh, area. I put here, in truth, we are all damaged goods in one way or another. Uh, some people are more damaged than others. Some people cry more than other people cry. Some people had, because of their background, are a bit more mixed up than others. There's no, I'm not trying to deny that. But there's a sense in which all of us, because we live, we're not living in the Garden of Eden, are we? I mean, your road might be nice. But we're not living in the Garden of Eden. And even when we do feel we're in the Garden of Eden, there's actually a snake in the tree as well. And so there's a sense in which we're all having to be conformed, of course, to the image of Christ. All of us have got some hang-ups and some areas where we might need the healing of God. Now what I wanted to do today, just it's a bit of an experiment really, but maybe this will help us, just to talk about five different kinds of people that have walked into church this morning. Uh, there are, of course, many different kinds. Here are just five uh, just for us to think about. You may be one of these people. If you're anything like me, you might find that you're all five of them. (laughs) So don't worry about that, (laughs) because you can join me at the front. But, But different kinds of people who are, in a sense, slightly damaged goods. A parcel that's supposed to arrive perfect, but is a bit dented, around the edges. Well, you'll get the idea as we go. Here are some people who who may be living in your street, may be working with you, may be sitting next to you now, or may even be the person you look at in the mirror uh, each and every day. And I want to talk about what difference Christ, becoming a Christian, might make to them. And I hope this will make sense as we go. Number one. This person I've called the unworthy. The unworthy. This is a low self-esteem sort of person. Uh, Probably all of us from time to time have some low self-esteem, but I'm talking about someone who sort of lives in the arena of low self-esteem, the unworthy. And here are a few things. They They might never ever say these out of their mouth. But things that are in their heart, their mind, I'll never be good at anything. No one could ever love me. Uh, everything I do is wrong. They have that sort of about them. They, are, they don't walk with their head high. 
They walk with their head low. They are sort of unworthy. They, of course, God has something to say about this that were contradicted, of course, but this is how they sort of live their lives. A feeling of not being very good at anything. A feeling, and maybe it came out of school. Maybe it came out of their home. Maybe that's how they were raised. Often people who have siblings who are in some way, you know, seemingly superior to them, suffer like this. And, and what I want to suggest to you is this, that someone who is like this walks into church and uh, maybe more specifically, they walk into a relationship with Christ. What will happen to such a person, initially anyway, if they become a Christian? What will happen to them? Well, I've thought of a few things. The first thing is, now what we hope is that over a period of time they'll be transformed. But initially, what they will do is they will transfer their feelings of being unworthy in front of their dad and they will transfer it to feeling unworthy in front of God. That would be the default thing that would happen. Now, I know some people get a miraculous conversion and change, and I'll say this a few times this morning, no doubt. But, but by and large, the biggest thing most likely to happen is that if someone feels a bit like they're not very good at life, they're not very successful, they feel a bit rubbish, their brother's better than them, or their sister is prettier than them, or some such thing as this, the most likely thing is they will transfer those same characteristics in their relationship with God. And as I've put here on the screen, no matter what they believe, in inverted commas, no matter what church they're in, no matter what they're taught, initially, they will come through into their experience with Christ and they will bring that luggage with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Please say yes if you do. They're most likely to bring that luggage with them into their relationship with God. And so if they didn't believe that their brother loved them, they may not believe that God loves them. Right? If they didn't believe that they were any good at anything, as they become a Christian, they're likely to bring all that through with them. Where they feel, well... I'm unlikely to feel that I can be used by God in some special way. I hear preaching all the time, God wants to use me and God's got a plan for me. But as I hear it, it goes way over my head because all I think about is, well, that's absolutely true for the person next to me, but it's not true for me. And you might know a person like that, you might be that person. What I want you to do today is to recognize that maybe some of those things that were all over you before you became a Christian are still with you today. And that maybe the Holy Spirit needs to transform you. To allow you to feel loved by God, accepted by God, and that actually all the old things have passed away. And all things have become new. Now that's a journey for you. 
But hear the word of the Lord today. If you were like that before you're a Christian, you're most likely going to be like that after you're a Christian unless God transforms you in a special way. So there's hope, okay? Let's look at another character that might wander into church today. The perfectionist. The perfectionist. What's the perfectionist like? Well, someone who says, I can never quite achieve my goals. They're not quite the, um, the unworthy. It's a little bit different to that. It's another kind of characteristic. Someone who wants to achieve a hundred percent in things. Everything has to be absolutely right. Absolutely right. And as a result, guess what? You can't do everything absolutely right. Nobody can. And so, in fact, it brings about a sense of failure. Uh, they, they can't please other people. They can't even please themselves. The perfectionist. What happens to this person when they become a Christian? Guess what? They're likely to bring their perfectionist bag with them into the kingdom of God with them. Now, you can think for yourself, how might this perfectionist be how might they operate in the realm of the kingdom of God? Well, you might think, and in one sense, of course, perfectionists want to do things well. They believe in excellence. So you might think it's a positive trait. In one sense, it's a positive trait. But there are plenty of other negative traits that come with perfectionism because it's not possible. And so they might view God as someone right at the top of a high ladder to which the person must climb and strive. Christianity is stressful stroke impossible. Every time a preacher mentions sin, the perfectionist sits in their chair and thinks, that's me. I'm, I'm a failure. Now, of course, we are all sinners. But a sense of feeling that it just can't be done. And God is so far away. Because what perfectionists do is they think of God as also being a perfectionist just like them. And so everything about Christianity becomes stressful. You might even argue that they are more in bondage uh, in the kingdom of God than they were before. In their mind anyway. Because now... Not only have they got to keep other people happy, but they've got to keep God happy, and that's impossible to do. Or so they think, because they miss the grace of God, don't they? And so they think of everything as being hard. Must try harder is the word for the day. Every time they go to their Bible, they, they see these words, must try harder. That's how they see their relationship with their Father in heaven. As a kind of a daddy on earth that is, that is uh, constantly urging them, well, couldn't you have got better marks than you got? They're like a young kid running in and going, you won't believe it. I got a B in social science. Whatever that is. And to which daddy says, that's marvelous. Couldn't you have got an A? The perfectionists have some good qualities about them. But ultimately, if you're a perfectionist, you'll end up absolutely crushed 
feeling that you can never quite make it. That person may be sitting in the room today or listening to me on the, on the feed. Or that person may even be you who has that trait. And if you were like that before you're a Christian, you're likely to have brought that with you into the king's house. And you need the grace of God to speak to you, to help you to throw that off and just you delight in the presence of your heavenly Father. Because perfectionism is required. And it was required of Christ, thank God. Not us. Not in that sense anyway. Okay, who's a third person who might wander into church today? The super sensitive person. Now, I've got to be careful of what I say about this because I might offend them. The super sensitive person. Super sensitive. Now, how does the super sensitive person behave? Well, uh, they have a mentality, some of them, that they uh, have been used and abused by everybody. Uh, they show love or they think they show love to people and they feel rejected all the time. And they, uh, very sensitive people, they, they pour themselves into others. They expect the same back from them. They don't get it, so they feel, oh, life's not very good. That person's not very good. The other thing that super sensitive people are really good at is mind reading. You thought that mind readers just got on channel four, didn't you? Mind readers, do you know what? The human race is full of mind readers. Full of them. And churches are also full of mind readers. What am I talking about? Well, don't you know? Mind readers do this. Do you know what? Tom didn't speak to me today. Therefore, he's thinking this. Do you know what? When I came through the door, someone looked at me in a funny way. That means they think I've offended them. Mind reading. So and so is supposed to come to my house. They haven't come. They hate me. It's the only explanation. <laughs> Mind reading is rife. Shall I give you some advice? Don't do it. Because you're not very good at it. And if you're sensitive, all your mind reading skills will be honing on the negative things. I don't believe it. We didn't get a Christmas card this year from the Smiths. I knew that that chicken we cooked for them last August has offended them. I knew it. Hear the word of the Lord today. You don't know nothing. Mind reading. It's going on all the time. He looked at me. He looked at me. He didn't look at me. What, 
What? What can it mean? She sat over there this week. What does that mean? Ooh. Mind readers. Now, if you're like that before you're a Christian, my goodness. Do you know what'll happen? You become a Christian, and then you won't call it mind reading, you'll call it prophetic inspiration. <laughs> Before you called it a hunch. Now you're in a Pentecostal church. Now you call it word of knowledge. And it's rubbish both times. Can you say amen? Oh, I know. I know. Look, the way he looked at me. The way he looked at me. I know what that means. No, you don't know what that means. And if you're sensitive, you interpret it all negatively and you end up gloomy. Thinking that lots of people don't like you. And the saddest truth of all is, if you really knew what people were thinking of you, guess what? You would discover that they don't think anything at all. (laughs) Oh, I... I wonder what Jane thinks of me. Guess what? Jane don't think about me at all. I'm not meaning me. I mean you. I thank you, love. Oh, I know you do. All right. She wishes to correct me. I believe she is perhaps a little sensitive on this matter. Yeah. They turn their hunches into prophecies. Well, I know they don't like me. It was confirmed in a dream. Oh, really? Confirmed in a dream. Yes, in the dream he was, he was nasty to me. What you don't tell the person as well is that 10 seconds before he was in the dream nasty to you, he was a bunny rabbit somewhere in Norway. Then he was nasty to you and then suddenly you're on, a, you're on an aeroplane going to New York. But you cut that bit out and said, oh, yeah, there you are. There's the prophecy. Just as I thought. Mind reading. Don't do it. Don't do it. Save you a lot of grief. Save a whole load of hurt. And it's not true. And even the devil might get into that. Cause some trouble. Now, this person, they become a Christian. What might they do? Well, they might turn their mind reading and their, into, into prophecy. But what about their sense of feeling? You know that people have... Uh, abuse me. I don't mean abuse in the, in the most strong sense, but people, you know, just use me and nobody likes me. What's going to happen when that person becomes a Christian? I'll give you the answer. What's going to happen is they are going to come into a whole community of people now. Like before, they only had four people who might not like them because they worked in an office. Before, Excuse me, they only had, you know, six or seven people who might not like them. Now they're in church. There's lots of people now not to like them. In their mind. So what might happen? Well, they enter an imperfect church, which creates more hurt for them. And sometimes, very sensitive people, they kind of fake being tough 
That's a very common characteristic of sensitive people. Rather than being gentle and, and sort of lowly, as you might think they might be, actually pain has caused them to be quite tough. And so sometimes they can be rude or harsh. And rude and harsh people don't make good friends. And so that sort of confirms their analysis even further that people just generally don't like me. Well, if you're going to be like that, what's going to happen is as you come into the kingdom of God, you're likely to bring that bag with you into the kingdom with you, dragging it behind you. And you need the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Otherwise, you get hurt, you leave, you say there was no love in that church. And surprise, surprise, in many cases anyway, there's no love in the next church either for you. Because it's all really what's going on up here. Okay, here's another one who might have come into church today. The doubter. (laughs) Any doubters here? The doubter. This might be a more male thing, this one. But I guess these cross all the genders, really. The doubter. The doubter is someone who generally is a bit skeptical about things. I believe it if I see it. Now, what you might think is that someone who has that kind of approach to life wouldn't become a Christian, but you're wrong. There are plenty of people who have lots of doubts about things and they do become Christians. They do. They do. But they bring that general sense, they call it healthy skepticism. But sometimes skepticism is not healthy, but spiritually unhealthy. They can bring that with them into their relationship with the Christ. So the doubter says, I'm not easily persuaded of things. I have to see it to believe it. The other thing a doubter does is they actually doubt other people's experiences of God. Can I say that again? The doubters, they not only doubt certain things about God, but they doubt that other people have had certain experiences with God. So they take their level of skepticism a bit further than normal, where they see other people, and maybe they might even see them happy. And think they can't really be that happy. I'm miserable. So they can't possibly be happy. And they have this general level of sort of gloom about them, negativity about them. I mean, God bless them. I feel for them. I'm not snapping at them. But they have a general level of being skeptical, you know, sort of slightly cynical. Is it really true? Can that really be the case? And they do become Christians. Thomas became a Christian. You know that? But he brought that characteristic of being a bit, you know, on the old skeptical side with him into his relationship with God. Now, what can happen here? Well, the walk of faith becomes very hard. They can become cynical, skeptical. They're certainly not easy receivers from the Holy Spirit. They're not people who easily can receive from God on a kind of an experiential level. Because even when they have their experience with God, when they go away and they've got their skeptical head on, their skeptical computer head tells them, well, it wasn't really real. 
That didn't really happen. You made it up. And as a result of that, it short-circuits the walk of faith for them. They're very unsure about the supernatural power of God. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that we believe absolutely everything we hear. Can I say that, please? Not every, not every single thing I hear from different parts of the world do I fully think is 100% true. But that doesn't make me a, that doesn't give me a kind of a disposition of a doubter. Because I know this, I know that God loves faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And doubters can sometimes think that their doubt is them being clever. But actually, what they actually do is they displease God. Sometimes it would be better to believe something. By exercising faith, it would be better to believe than to disbelieve. Whatever the outcome might be with with, uh, God. I remember one time being in a wonderful healing meeting and people were being healed all over the place. And uh, one man hobbled up with the crutches or whatever. And uh, then a few minutes later, I saw him running across a football pitch, completely healed. Uh, amen. Wonderful. But at the same time, I remember seeing people in wheelchairs and some of them stood up in faith. And they began to try to walk in faith. And really, nothing significant or at least immediate was happening to them. And after a few minutes of like hobbling around, bless them, they sat down. Do you, know, do you know what I, it was a shame that they didn't, like the guy, end up running across the pitch. But do you know what? All I could feel was the pleasure of God. Because God loves faith. So even though on that occasion they were not, they didn't get their, their wonderful miracle on that occasion. Who knows what happened later. But certainly on that occasion, they didn't get their miracle. And yet, it just pleases, it pleases God when you believe. It pleases God when you believe. Don't think that unbelief is clever. It might be clever where you work, but it ain't clever in the Word. Okay. Here's my final one, I think. Someone who might have come into church today, or might come in next week. The status seeker. These are people who, they don't get their worth from being, they get their worth from doing. You know the kind of people I mean? That if your, if your status was taken away, you would feel worthless. If you had your job taken from you, now I'm not suggesting you wouldn't be disappointed, but a sense of feeling an utter failure, you know, that's it. Uh, you know, that's all gone now. You get your, your feel-good factor, not from who you are, but from what you do. But from what you do. Let's look at a few ideas. I'm fulfilled by doing, not being. A status seeker needs to feel useful and respected. They don't like obscurity. Now, once again, some of these things might be good. It's good to want to do things. There's plenty of people in the body of Christ who don't want to do anything except sit at home and mind read while other people are thinking. It's good to do things. At the end of the age, we're going to be rewarded according to what we've done, not according to what we hope we might get around to doing. Can you say amen? Yeah, we'll get rewarded according to what we have done. Not what we hope we'd do, not what we thought we might do, 
Not what Brother Dingling prophesied we might do, but what we actually did. I used to work in a job where it was fairly easy going, you know. And uh, in this job, there could be an hour go by, you wouldn't do any work, you were still paid for it. It's marvelous. And then I had another job where you clocked in and clocked out. And, like, and every time you went to the toilet, you had to, you know, right, there's my 15 minutes. And you were only paid for absolutely everything you did. Oh, it hurt me terribly. But in terms of rewards in the kingdom of heaven, it's exactly like that. You're not rewarded for what you hoped you'd do. You're rewarded for what you've done. And only that. So it's good. But what about people who can corrupt this? What happens when this person becomes a Christian? Someone who really just gets their value by doing things, not just by being something. Well, they can corrupt the godly practice of serving God with a desire for personal esteem. They, uh, they may well seek shortcuts to public prominence. Uh, at work, at home, even in the church. I shouldn't say this, of course, because I'm, I'm snitching on my mates here. But sometimes I go to these pastors' conferences and you see like really important pastors. They sit at the front, you know. And then the, the rest of us, we, we allowed to sit wherever we want. But then you get these, 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 these middle pastors who want to be important. So you see them like hovering around the really important ones over coffee. Oh, hello. My name is the Reverend Bean. <laughs> Trying to, you know, get in with the boys. I hate that, you know. I hate that. I love the back row at these events. I'm not interested in prominence like that. But you get the feeling that some of them who began well, they wanted to serve God, they really did, but now they gain their worth from being seen. It's a danger to become a Pharisee, isn't there? Now find the balance. Find the balance. We're not saying no one should do anything. But you should do it to serve God, not to be seen by others. And if someone has a desire to be esteemed by being rewarded, you know, publicly applauded, when they become a Christian, what do they do? They drag that with them into the church. And it turns into an ugly monster. Anyway, there are five people. There are many more. But what I wanted to show you today was that some of the hang-ups that we had before we were saved they do come with us into the kingdom of God. So, what about some solutions? Let's, that, that was all bad news. Here's some good news. Just to finish. Towards some solutions, how can we um, sort these things out? You may have recognized yourself today in one or more of those characters. If you're like me, you recognize yourself a bit in nearly all of them. What can we do? Because one thing we mustn't do is not do anything. We've got to deal with it. One of the great things about Christianity, it actually compels people to deal with their hang-ups. Do you know what? Your mate down the pub or your mate at work, they never have to face the issue of forgiveness or their bad temper or their terrible marriage. They never have to face it because they're not accountable to anyone. They just live how they want to live. 
but you're the people of God. I'm one of the people of God. I can't live how I want to live and neither can you. And we have to face these issues, especially when they do others harm. So just in a few minutes, just to finish, towards some solutions. Number one, we have to ask the Lord to show us what the real problem is. What's the real problem? Let's just very quickly turn to Romans chapter 8. I only want to read one verse, but I think it's important for you to see it. Romans chapter 8. And um, there's a verse that says, we we don't know how to pray as we ought. There it is, verse 26. Romans 8 says this, verse 26, in the same way, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Or in our weakness. The Spirit wants to help you and me in our weakness. He's not coming along to give us a round of applause when we're strong. He comes to help us in our weakness. Well, that's good news. And he says here, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The Spirit knows what's wrong with me. Now I know some of you think you do. And I might think I know what's wrong with you. But the good news is the Spirit really knows what's wrong with me. And he needs to tinker. What's that wonderful story? I think I have it on the, on the screen coming up here. Charlie Steinmetz. Uh, it's one of these wonderful preacher's stories. It's been going for years and years, this story. But apparently, uh, Henry Ford, you know Henry Ford who invented the, the Ford car? He, was, he had a big electrical plant. And Steinmetz, I've got to say the name right, Steinmetz, he was an electrical, he was a brilliant electrical engineer. And one time, Henry Ford's electrical plant did not work. It broke. It was brilliant, but it broke. And Steinmetz showed up, and within 20 minutes, he found the problem, and he fixed it. And within 20 minutes, the plant was back up running again. And he sent Ford a bill for $10,000. And when Ford said, what are you doing? You're here 20 minutes. $10,000 for 20 minutes. This is a long time ago, but this is decades ago. So Steinmetz sent the bill back. And he said, okay, okay. For fixing the problem, $50. But for knowing where to fix the problem, $9,950. Amen. The Spirit knows how to fix us. He's like Steinmetz. It might only take him 20 minutes, but he knows where to touch us. So we need to ask him. He can help us with our unknown weaknesses. James 4 verse 3 says, when we ask God about things, we ask amiss. We don't know what we should pray for. So let's ask him. So that's number one. 
We need to talk to him and say, Lord, you know what? I, I've been sitting here this morning. I've been listening to this podcast. I, I think I've got one or two of these problems. You have to face the choice, which is the next one, which is, do you really want to be healed? Jesus asked this question of a man lame. I think he'd been lame for 38 years in John 5 and verse 6. And he said to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And funny enough, the man replies, well, I've got no one to help me. And he doesn't answer the question. He's, he's near the pool. You know the pool where the miracles were happening. And he says, well, I've got no one to help me. But God didn't ask him, have you got anyone to help you? He asked him, do you want to get well? It's a very rude question to ask a lame man at a miracle fountain. <laughs> but it's a good question. We might have a few hang-ups, you see. But here's a good question. Do we actually want to be well? Because I'll tell you something, from 15, 20 years in ministry, some people don't. They don't want to be changed. And I'm not being harsh, I'm just telling it as it is. Some people don't want to be changed at all. They're very happy now. Being mean or, or gloomy or you know, whatever they are, they, they, they kind of like it. Do we want to be well? Sometimes people will come and say, can I talk to you? I want to talk to you. They'll come around and see you in your home. They'll meet you for a coffee. But they don't want a solution. They just want your sympathy. They don't want, uh, they don't want to be changed, but they want to have a conversation with you. Do you know what? If we're going to be a mature church, we need to be a group of people who don't just meet up to talk about our woes, but we need to be people who talk up, who shop to talk about how can we get some solutions. Can you say amen? How can we get some solutions? I just don't want to show up and have coffee with you and moan about my wife or moan about the man at work or the lady at work. I want to show up and I want to talk to you about how can God help me to overcome this? And not just by praying that they'll be fired and all, but something else, maybe a bit different to that. Do we want sympathy or do we want a solution? So number one, we have to ask the Lord. Because he, he's like Steinmetz. He knows how to fix us. Number two, we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we want to be changed? And number three, finally. Number three. Sometimes we have to own up and take responsibility. Some of the problems we have have been caused by other people. Some of those five characters that I invented earlier for us who come into church, come into the kingdom of God. The person who's unworthy, the perfectionist, the super sensitive. Many of these people have been made that way by their dad, their mum, their school teacher, their brother, etc. Or we should say they've played an influencing role. But, you know what the Bible says? That we're responsible for our lives. So even though someone may have hurt me and therefore I've become odd as a result, I've still responded in that way. Do you understand? I'm still responsible. Even if we feel damaged by other people, we've responded with certain life choices. James 5.16 says we should confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. Sometimes it's good to, it's good to talk and say, you know what, I, 
Maybe you want to get together with someone at the end of this and say, can I, in different, whatever group of the church you're in, whatever friendships you've made, and say, will you, perhaps you could pray with me, perhaps we could talk about this. Because I am, I have carried a great bag of negativity. Not only have I carried it into the kingdom of God, but I've been carrying it for 15 years in my Christian life. And I haven't as yet been what Romans says, conformed to the image of the Son of God. You know that Mark 11 tells us we should forgive as well in order to have our prayers answered. But I'm out of time for now. May the Lord help us to be matured. And some have certain characteristics, some have certain personal traits. We are all different. But where there's been the carrying of all baggage for years, through the salvation gate, through the discipleship gate, through the sanctification gate, Somebody who's been in church 45 years is still dragging, still dragging how they used to be before they knew Christ. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www kingscambridge.org If you're listening on iTunes we would love you to leave us some feedback God bless and goodbye